Amen. So we are nine, this is the ninth in an 11-part series that we're doing here at King's called Spotlight, in which each week we are shining a spiritual spotlight, as it were, on the character of God, trying to ask what's God like, and therefore honing in on a particular attribute or aspect of what God is like. Because we're saying, and you'd expect us as a church to say this, that what God is like is a pretty profound question to ask. For those of us that are Christians, who we believe God to really be, what we believe him to really be like affects everything. It affects how we pray, it affects how we endure suffering, it affects what we think about God, it affects how we view ourselves, it affects what we do with our resources, what we think of God, who we believe him to be, is a massive question. And if we're not yet a Christian or we're not sure, then we want to invite you to explore the God as he is. We want you to be able to consider God as he really is. And so we've spent a number of weeks looking at these different attributes of God. And if you were with us last week or you have not been able to catch up on the podcast because it didn't record, but if you were with us last week, uh, we were in Ephesians 2, and I'm going to continue in the same passage. And if you were with us last week, we'll probably work out why we're doing that. But if you weren't, as I say, we weren't able to make a recording last week, but I've got a transcript if you'd like it. But if you weren't here last week, you're not sure what I'm talking about, you will soon, I think, see why Ephesians 2 is a great place for us to base uh, our morning in. So, This is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, speaking about the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. At which point most of us want to hurry on quickly to verse 4. But we said last week it's important sometimes not to do that. It's important to sit in and meditate on troubling passages like this. And if you weren't here last week, we spent most of this time together exploring what it is for God to experience and express anger, wrath. We looked at that whole topic about why is it that God would feel angry? Why is it that he would express anger? And we said that it comes from a profound holiness that he has. It comes from a profound justice and a hatred of injustice and evil that he has. And it comes from a profound love for people and, a, and an anger when people are harmed and damaged. And we also said that it's not a case that God's anger is directed towards perhaps the things that we might class as the real stuff of evil. We had a, a bookshelf, do you remember? And we said that we tend to, in our human, perhaps Western way, we tend to maybe kind of categorize people in their goodness or in their evilness. And we might say, well, it makes sense for God to direct his judgment towards those in the bottom shelf, the really evil people, the ones that enjoy committing harm, like dentists, we said. And then we said on our level shelf five and shelf four, people get marginally better, but maybe they're also quite bad as well. But we said actually God doesn't look at it like that. He doesn't look at humanity as an order of goodness. He looks right into the human heart. And as Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian philosopher said, human evil runs is a line through every human heart. It's not a horizontal line between some and others. And so the Bible's teaching is really clear that all of us outside of God through Christ sit under the wrath of God. We're in, we're in peril. We can't hope to approach him even with the greatest and best things we do such as the, the level of fallenness and brokenness that we all uh, embody. 
And so it was, it was a sobering time together last week just to kind of sit in that because we prefer to rush into verses four and beyond, but to sit in, why would God be angry? Why would he express his anger? And to sit in that sobering sense of the peril that anybody outside of Christ sits in. And the other reason to sit in a passage like this or meditate on a passage like this or not rush past a passage like this is not only does it help you feel that appropriate sense of sobriety and reverence and and fear of a good, holy, loving, just God who expresses anger as a result. Not only does it do that, it also brings to even greater life what God has done. And so the next two words, when you really take the time to submit yourself to the word of God in verses one to three, that the first two words of verse four mean so much. I think they meant a lot to us last week if you were here because the first two words of verse four say, but God. So you sit in this place of, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm in peril outside of God. But the story doesn't end there. Verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, Can you see this morning's attribute? You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So last week, we we needed to sit in the space that is, if you like, bad news. But as we did that, and as we submitted ourselves to what God would say about us, the good news becomes so much greater. The but God means that there is grace in abundance. God is a God of grace, and he lavishes it upon people. And that's our attribute this morning, the grace of God. What do we mean by the grace of God? And theologians and people with much bigger minds than me have wrestled with this over the centuries. But uh, one definition, our working definition for this morning of the grace of God based on primarily what the Bible says, but also what some uh, helpful people have said. I'm going to work with this. The grace is the unmerited uh, favor or love of God that chooses sinners, rescues them, exalts and transforms them and daily sustains them. That's what we mean by grace. The unmerited, we don't deserve it, favor of God that chooses sinful, fallen people, rescues them, exalts and transforms them, and daily sustains them. Number one, grace is something that chooses. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a hint in the text. It's only a hint, but it's a genuine hint about God's choice that is an aspect of his grace. In verse 10, as I say, it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that beforehand taps into another attribute of God, which is his sovereignty, the fact that he, and his on, and his all-knowingness, the fact that he knows everything. Nothing happens outside of his will or control. Everything that has happened, God has known about before there was even time and creation. 
But it's put more clearly the chapter before. So I can just help take you to that. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So part of God's grace is that he, he, he makes a choice before there is even time itself. Not only that, he will, if you like, offer grace to, to save and to rescue us, but he knows who will respond. There's the sovereignty of God. And it, it's kind of a bit of a, a headbender one for us because it runs, that truth runs in parallel with the fact that our choice is very real. I was really clear, human beings have genuine choice, genuine will for which we're responsible and accountable, but it runs concurrent with God's overarching sovereign will. In other words, the truth of the Bible taken as a whole is that God causes us to choose him voluntarily. God causes us to choose him voluntarily. He initiates what we respond to. So God's grace is such that before he created the world, before there was time, space, creation, his sovereignty means he knew the mess that we would make of it. He knew the brokenness and the fracture that humanity would bring to his creation. His grace means he went ahead anyway, knowing that he would enact a plan of restoration to heal a broken humanity and a broken creation. And let's be clear, for, for our salvation to be entirely down to the grace of God, which is what the Bible teaches, entirely down to him bestowing his love upon us and, and him marking us out for the kingdom of God and the family of God, it needs to be his ultimate choice. These things actually need to be true. What do I mean by that? Because if God doesn't know who will ultimately respond to his grace, then he ceases to become less than God. He's not all-knowing. He's not truly God if he doesn't know who will respond to the grace that he offers. And what's more, if that response of ours that is real and genuine, if that is ultimately at bottom line down to us, then something of our work, therefore, starts to creep in to grace. If the bottom line is we have to find our way to God's grace, then can you see how our effort, our work, becomes very, very tangibly involved in salvation? It's, it will be a sense of, well, God's done this thing, offered this thing, this grace through Jesus Christ, but I had to find the faith to believe it. I had to find my way to God. And that would mean we've done something. We've worked our way towards the grace of God. And that's not the case. God's grace is such that he found you. He didn't just do a thing and offer it and say, well, let's cross our fingers and hope some people respond. His grace means he made a choice to find you with it, to pursue you with it. He marked you out. He wrote your name, if you're a Christian, into his family book. That's good news. It's good news that there's nothing God doesn't know. There's no one who comes into the family of God that is a surprise to him. 
I often say this, but I, I make no apology for repeating it. There are some of us, some Christians who perhaps became Christians as, as, as children or as younger people. We don't have a dramatic testimony of coming to Christ from significant uh, dramatic surroundings. We, we, we came to Christ as children or as teenagers. And it's kind of tempting to think, well, that just happened because that's how I was brought up. And it's not the case. God found you with his grace. In fact, I would go as far as to say you received a, let me phrase this right, a particularly precious form of his grace. Because he said, I'm not actually going to allow you to go down the trajectory of your natural sinful rebellion, which that will take you. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to put you in a family where your parents point you towards the love and the grace of God. That is grace. So there's no room, actually, for any less I guess humility, delight, reverence for those of us who, who came to Christ as children, as teenagers. In fact, we should be saying, God, there, we should look around and say, there but by the grace of God go I. In other words, thank you for intervening then. Like the more that I'm just honest with the state of my human heart, I know there is still some, 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 some darkness here. I know what I'm capable of, or at least I have an idea. So you, you put me in a very different setting, the one that I wasn't born into, the one where there is godlessness and there is brokenness. And so I know where I've got an idea I would have ended up. But the grace of God met me as a child and as a teenager through my parents. And then, my own story, the grace of God met me again when I tried my best to run away from it. The grace of God is a choosing grace. It pursues us. Whether you have a dramatic testimony of coming from totally unchurched faith backgrounds or whether it was a gradual, subtle, seemingly quiet journey towards faith, it is God is making his way towards you. Do you believe that? Because I know some of us kind of think, oh, there's like levels of God's grace. And if you have a Jason Stock story, remember Jason's testimony at Alpha, that famous line, I went from devouring lines of Coke to devouring lines of the Bible. If you, if you have a dramatic testimony like that, that, wow, that's the grace of God in action plucked from one thing into the other. It's just an example of the grace of God. He chooses us, he pursues us in all kinds of ways. And we need to know we didn't sneak in by the back door. He made the decision in eternity past, I want you in my family. I'm gonna write your name in my family book. And if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, I put it to you that part of you being here is that the grace of God is pursuing you. Don't get caught up too much in, well, am I chosen? Am I not? I, I just would put it to you that part of being in this space, hearing this message, what might suggest to you that the eternal God's grace is pursuing you. And you have a choice as to whether you respond. So the unmerited love of God, this is what grace is, the unmerited favor of God, it, choose, it, it chooses and secondly, it rescues well, I don't need to say too much about this because we, we spent time with this last week. It rescues us. This is why the but God of verse four is so profound. If you spend enough time in verses one to three just meditating on the, the nature of the peril that we are in outside of God, the but God, the rescue is so profound. We've been rescued from peril. And you could explain that in all kinds of ways. The peril that it is to be outside of God's family, outside of God's goodness. The, the, the wrath that we sit under, the darkness that we would uh, continue to endure, the spiritual death that it is. Been rescued from peril. Verse one, Paul describes it as being like spiritually dead. That's what we've come from. And if you were a child or a teenager, that's 
where you were heading outside of the intervention of the grace of God. So God's grace isn't just a choice about us, it's then a choice to rescue us. I've told the story before, so forgive me if you've, if you've already heard it, and it's not a perfect analogy by any means, but it might help us a little bit. When I was a, a child, um, I was, we were on holiday in, in Devon, as uh, a kind of regular family jaunt, um, and we were on a particular part of the beach, I was thinking about seven or so, and I remember vividly, as you do with these childhood memories, I remember my dad saying to me, where we were on the beach, the, um, uh, the sand, it kind of looked like you just walk on the sand into the water and you kind of gradually go into the sea as you would normally. But he said to me, listen Philip, it's not the case. Actually, after a few feet, it's not just a gradual decline of the sand or the beach, it shelves away very dramatically. I don't know if you've ever been in places like that where suddenly the beach kind of shelves away and it gets much, much deeper. And he said to me, if you expect a good father too, don't go any further out in those first few feet because it's going to get very deep. And something in me does what happens in, what is this thing in humanity? We're like, well, I, I don't want to do that. I can see this as a boundary and an instruction for my good, for my flourishing from a caring father, but I would like to test that and push against that. And there's something in this, isn't it? In their humanity. And spiritually, you trace it back to Adam and Eve, to the Garden of Eden, the story of the Bible, and God puts good boundaries in place for our flourishing, for our good. And we say, I'm not sure about that. I'd like to test it and push it. And there's me, just kind of a little mini um, microcosm of that part of the human condition. So there's me taking my first few steps into the water. Feels like, I think I'll be fine. Before does my dad know? I'll be fine. And I can remember vividly, really vivid memory, walking out and whoosh, suddenly, sure enough, this beach shelves away, the water gets really deep, I can't stand. I must have been a pretty ropey swimmer because I, I, I remember vividly the panic. Maybe it was the panic rather than the lack of swimming, but the panic that just set on me as the water. I was trying to bob my head up and down and you start to choke on the water and you're waving your hands in the air. And I can remember so vividly thinking, oh, I'm drowning. And I can also remember very vividly looking across the beach and seeing my dad go from reading the paper, Times, sports pages, I think, <laughs> looking up and doing a second look dropping his paper and sprinting across the beach as you would perhaps expect. All he was missing was the red Baywatch style <laughs> floater and I think he would have been in the full in, in his element. But I can remember so vividly him just launching himself into the, into the water, uh, swimming across. I can remember the, the elbow under my chin and being dragged out of the water and plopped on the sand, spluttering and tearful little boy, but rescued and safe. And like I say, it, there are aspects in that analogy that don't fully work, but what I'm trying to get across to you is the peril that we were in and the rescue of God to bring us out. That's part of his grace, that he rescues us. There was nothing I could have done. At least I didn't think there was at the time. There's nothing I could have done to get myself out of that. I needed a rescue. Now, I'm going to say there are other aspects of it that don't kind of fully work with what we're saying, but the, the reality of a God who doesn't just see us in our plight and say, well, I told you so, who runs, who pursues us, who dives in. And my father do dove in and brought me out. Jesus Christ, as it were, dove in and went fully under to death itself. He didn't just jump in, risk his life and bring us out. He jumped in and went right down to death and burial so that we might swim and walk and live and come back into flourishing and life. The grace of God rescues us. Number three. The grace of God exalts us. So it chooses us, it rescues us, and it exalts us. Verse five, 
made us, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There it is, the rescue. Verse six, and. And this word and, I would say, is the third best word ever written in the English language. If but God, in verse four, are the best two, this word and is closely followed on its heels. And, as though God needed to do any more than just rescue us. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So God's grace, God's passion for pouring out his love on undeserving people who don't even ask for it often is such that kind of level one, as it were, he rescues us from a judgment that we cannot stand. We cannot hope to stand in front of a God who loves people, loves justice, and is as holy as he is, and hope to stand that judgment, no matter what we may have done to contribute to humanity. And that judgment is is not just put to one side, it's poured out on Jesus Christ and not on us. And so, kind of level two, as it were, not only do we kind of, uh, not only is the, is the punishment not given to us and given to Jesus himself, level two, the, the spiritual account is now clear. And I'm diverting to different language that Paul uses elsewhere in the Testament. He talks about our account. He says, your spiritual account is now clear. No debt to be paid. No condemnation. Our sin is forgotten. As far as the east is from the west, God's grace means that he doesn't even remember the things that he's wiped from your account, from your slate. Not because he excused it, or he turned a blind eye to it, or he was less bothered about it, but because he absorbed it and the fullness of it into himself. Furthermore, and, Paul's and, he unites us to Christ. Wouldn't it be enough if we, if we were just released to be free and innocent? But the grace of God unites us to Christ. Paul's favorite term for that is being in Christ, united to Christ. In this particular passage, in verse four, he says it's being made alive together with Christ. There's an extraordinary spiritual unity that takes place. A Christian is not somebody who's just um, been released and set free. A Christian is somebody who's been actually united, genuinely and tangibly and spiritually to Christ himself. His life is now ours. This is where the and kicks in. Because not only is that account, and Paul likes to use the language of accountancy at some point, not only is that language of that not only is that account cleared, wiped, brought back to zero, the debt clear, the condemnation done, and because our Jesus' life is now our life, we're united to him, we're alive together with him, all that he is is all that we are. So our account doesn't just go back to zero, it's then credited to the heavens with righteousness and perfection and blamelessness and all that Jesus has. You see that? The account is cleared, it's wiped clean, no debt, no condemnation in Christ Jesus, and it's filled up to the heavens with all that Jesus is. Righteous, pure, blameless, spotless, perfect. And the grace of God. And that's why Paul says in verse six, we've been seated with Jesus in heavenly places. Not just released, pronounced innocent and free and told to get on with life. But grace exalts us gives us a place alongside Christ, the inheritance of Christ, unity to Christ. And, there's more to the and, and by virtue of being in Christ, grace also means that we're adopted as sons and heirs. That's what I mean by exalted. 
not just rescued, but exalted and actually made children of God. I love how Paul puts it when he writes to Titus in chapter 3 and verse 7. It's like Paul is doing some of the, the mental gymnastics that we're doing. That having been justified by his grace, full stop, full stop, justified by grace, wow, enough to be rescued from peril, rescued from wrath, pronounced innocent and free, justified, pronounced righteous. He says that having been justified by grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Grace doesn't just rescue, grace exalts. It fills our account with the righteousness of Christ and makes us a child of God. It's an abundant, abundant attribute of God. If you're a Christian, this is who you are. Chosen, rescued, and made not just innocent and righteous and pure, but a royal child and heir. And I think, as we just look on the levels of grace, as it were, that must be why in our passage in Ephesians 2, verse 7, Paul says, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He can't get his head around it. He doesn't have the vocab for it. It's immeasurable, the richness of the grace of God. And because God did all of this, and it had nothing to do with you, then there's nothing by default that you can do to alter it. That's why it's so important to affirm the truth that grace is not through our works, not through our effort. Because if it is, then our effort, our work could then affect it later on, couldn't it? But there is nothing that you can do once you step into the family of God through faith in the gospel, what Christ has done. There is nothing you can do to alter this standing that you have in front of God, in the family of God. Innocent, righteous, pure, blameless, chosen, marked out, picked, valued, made a child, an heir, inheritance, the immeasurable riches of the, of the inheritance of heaven, united to Christ, son, heir of God. That's who you are. Do you believe that is the question. Or more importantly, has that belief, because many of you will have heard this many, many times before, has that cognitive knowledge, has it seeped right into here, into your very being when you wake up in the morning, is that how you consider yourself? When you begin to pray in the morning, is that how you come to God? Father, one who loves me, one who accepts me, one who's already guaranteed his love for me? Or do we just kind of gently negotiate sometimes our way into the presence of God? When you pray, do you pray as a much-loved, guaranteed child, one who's been marked out and chosen? Is that how you see yourself? That's who you'll be tomorrow. So tomorrow, whether you buy a homeless person lunch from Tesco's, or you go to Tesco's and steal lunch for yourself, you will be this person. Righteous, loved, perfect, spotless, blameless, marked out from before there was time itself to be a child and an heir in the family of God. That's who you'll be. If your works couldn't influence it in the first place, your works won't influence it now. At which point, and I gave that analogy deliberately, I can see a few thought bubbles popping up, there should be questions. And there could be loads of questions about the scandal of grace, because it is a scandal. But let me frame 
the way in which we might ask the questions. These, I'm giving broad brushstrokes, not claiming to have a prophetic insight into everybody's mind, but depending on our kind of personality, background, all kinds of things, we might respond to the scandal of grace that it means that we are, we are who we are now is who we are tomorrow, regardless of what we do. And that if you go and steal lunch from Tesco's today rather than buy lunch for a homeless person, you will still be tomorrow who you are today in the eyes of God. That should provoke questions in us. For some of us, or for some people, the question will probably be, therefore, well, why do we just carry on sinning? If it's all been cleared away, and it's all been dealt with and forgiven and forgotten, and nothing more that I do can change it, then let's just carry on nicking lunch from Tesco's. For others of us, the question's a bit different. Or it, the kind of concept's a bit different. We're not thinking about, I want to go and sin loads and loads and loads. What we're thinking is, if that's who I am, if that's my status, that's my position, that's the reality of my personhood, why do I sin? Why do I do things that I know don't do me good, don't glorify God? So two ways of looking at it. If grace is like this, let's just carry on doing whatever we want. And if grace is like this, why am I not living in the fullness of, what, of who I am, what's been done for me? Why am I not living a life? If this grace has been made known to me and is guaranteed and sure, and I've got this incredible identity, why am I not living every day in purity and holiness and goodness and faithfulness and generosity and radical obedience? And the good thing is that Paul, honest person that he was, addresses both those questions. Romans 6, he says, what then? Shall we go on sinning? Because it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask when you consider the scandal of grace. And later on, he also says something like, I don't know why the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. And he addresses the question of, I've received so much, and grace has transformed me and made me a righteous, pure, royal son and heir, and yet sometimes I just don't live like it. And you grateful for the Bible that just speaks honestly into the human condition? And this series is much more about what God is like than it is about what we should do as a result. I want us just to keep gazing at him. And in this instance, gazing at this grace that chose you, rescued you, and exalted you. But I also want to say to you that grace is also the thing that sustains us. Grace is what sustains us every day. It's been my experience, and it may have been yours, that sometimes grace is simply what chose us and rescued us and exalted us and made us who we are. And then, well, it's the daily stuff of being a Christian and, and trying to do the right thing. Paul in the New Testament had no concept that grace somehow kind of finishes its job once we step into the family of God. And so for some of us, like I say, you know this. You know it all. If you've been in this church, this family of churches, then you've heard grace, grace, grace. We had Terry Virgo, the founder of our network of churches. He's preached this for 50 plus years in this church for a while, preaching it, preaching it, preaching it. And if you want to get more into this, listen to a recent series he did at Jamie's Old Church in America, three-part series on grace. Brilliant. It'll go into much more depth than I can. And it'll help you to live free and confident and joyful. But for the purposes of the next two or three minutes, I just want us to really consider what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's an ongoing, present tense. 2 Peter 3, 18. 
Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 29, the writer of Hebrews calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of grace. So this is an ongoing, present necessity. Do you live each day in the good of grace? And some clues to know that are, do you, when you consider God right now, do you, and you're a Christian, do you consider the smile of God to be the first thing that you see? Because that's how he sees you. You can grieve him, absolutely. But his disposition, because of his grace, is that his smile, his favor is upon you. Not because you're not just a person pronounced innocent who got off scot-free and is now doing their own thing. You've been exalted. You're a child. So of course you can grieve your father, but his smile is upon you. Is that how you see him? Or is there a kind of a neutral expression on the face of God for you? Or even a frown? Another clue is how do you start your prayer, prayers? How do you start praying? If you start with repentance, God, I'm really sorry for this, this, and this, and this. Him, don't get me wrong, repentance is necessary and important, but Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. That's the first thing he said to pray. Later on, he gets to repentance and forgiveness. If you start with, I'm sorry, God, about this, this, and this, and this. I put it as bluntly as this. You are trying to work your way into the grace of God. And you don't have to do that. You can't do that. Are you living in the grace of God? Are you being strengthened by it? Are others seeing it in you? Do you ask the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of grace, to clothe you? Grace is what sustains us. We never, ever, ever tire of needing God's grace for all that we do. To pray, to worship, to give, to parent, to be married, to, to, to be a, a colleague, to be a single mum, to be a stay-at-home parent, to be a retired person. The grace of God is what sustains you every day and it is in abundance. The Bible says that's where sin abounds, grace abounds more. So there's never a case where God's like, well, you kind of exhausted the tank. It's run out. It's not the nature of his grace. And so let me close with this final passage. The nature of this series is that we do have to kind of leap around the Bible a lot. So I hope you're coming with me on my leaping. In Hebrews 4.16, the writer says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The nature of what God's grace has done means that we confidently run to him every time. doesn't mean that we're casual about our lifestyle or our sin. Paul addresses that in chapter 6 of Romans. But the scandal of grace means that every Christian is invited to confidently, I would say, run to the throne of grace as would befit a child running to their father who they know is good and smiles upon them. Is that how you see God? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The last words of the whole Bible, sorry, last scripture, the last words of the whole Bible, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. That's how the Bible finishes. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. It is what sustains us, nurtures us, changes us, and it's what maintains us. 
and we will never ever depart from it. And it should prompt questions like, should I do this, should I do that? And that's not so much for today. But when you genuinely look at this God who marked you out, who rescued you, and who exalted you to the heavens, that changes what you want to do with your life. And that's about more than whether you get involved in habitual sin or not. It's about what you do with your life, your resources, your ambitions, your dreams. Paul went from being someone who wants to kill Christians and destroy the church. And one day God knocked him off his horse and he met with the grace of God in the most profound way. It chose him, it rescued him, it exalted him to a child of God. And he went about working as hard as anybody has ever worked probably for the Christian message and the Christian mission but always with the sufficiency of grace sustaining him. Even in his worst moments when he cried out to God, please take this awful thing away from me, whatever it was. What did God say to him? My grace is sufficient for all your needs and my power will be made evident through your weakness. If you will cling on to grace, be sustained by grace and not receive the grace of God in vain. Let's worship, shall we? Jamie, could you come and help us to do that? A little bit of a heart splurge. I hope you've heard it and been able to hear it. Um, and there are lots of different ways to respond. Why don't we just ask God how we should do that? Lord, we, we just want to, as a church, we just want to know you really, really well and better and better and better. And by know, we, we mean intimately experience you and encounter you and as Patrick prayed before, taste and see that you're good. We really do want to know you better, God. We really want to, to keep seeing and experiencing the magnificence of who you are in all your different attributes, all full and complete at the same time. And God, as we've heard this message, I just pray that we would know in our hearts now how you would have us respond. Holy Spirit, Spirit of grace, would you be at work in these moments? I pray where there may have been a, I don't know, even a, even a casualness about the absolute urgency and necessity of our need for grace. God, would you just forgive us of that in your gentle, kind way? Help us to be freshly amazed and grateful and humbled by what you took us from. Help us to be freshly confident in and delighted in what you've taken us to. And, and help us to walk as a, as a people of grace. May we love your grace so much. May we walk in the good of your grace so much. May it just change us and sanctify us more and more. And may it be in evidence to those around us. Jesus, we want to be like you. You who came in grace and truth. So I pray as we worship now, as we open our hearts to hear more from you, I pray you would, you would meet us, nurture us. May we glorify you. May the grace of God be the, the, one of the first truths on our lips. Amen. Amen. I really feel like God wants to keep saying some things, but I don't know what they are. So. Let's expect him to, to speak to us in these coming moments. Can we stand? And we're going to worship together.
Let's sing together. Um, and let's see what else God wants to do as he ministers to us as a, as a family. If we're in Christ, we're brothers and sisters in Christ together. That's an extraordinary bond that we have. And so let's be open, not just to receiving God for ourselves, but to ministering God to our brothers and sisters around us.